0: Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Our sermon lesson will come and be based on God's word in Revelation chapter 21. In fact, all of our sermons throughout this worship series are going to be based on Revelation and specifically the last two chapters of the book. Today, uh, we read Revelation 10, 21. And just for context, in the book of Revelation, there are actually seven revelations. And this is the beginning of the last one that God gives to the apostle John, who is at the time in exile on the island of Patmos. Revelation 21. John writes... He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. This is the word of your God. It's not the end of the world. That's what you say to a small child who unfortunately their toy breaks, their favorite toy, and they're worked up about it. It'll be all right. It's it's not the end of the world. That's what your best friend says to you when you don't make the team, when you don't get the job. It's what your best man or maid of honor says to you when you had an outdoor wedding planned and it rains. It's not the end of the world. It's what your spouse or a loved one says to you when you encounter a problem, a problem that they know you'll solve. It's not the end of the world. It's a saying, it's a a common saying that we say to one another to remind someone that things aren't as bad as they seem. It's a saying that people say in order to cheer people up, to, to let them know in the midst of bad circumstances that things are relatively not that bad. This isn't the worst thing that could happen. It's not the end of the world. what does that common, everyday saying say about that day, about Judgment Day, about what will be the end of the world? I mean, think about it for a moment. When we say that this thing that's going on isn't seemingly as bad as you think it is, it's not the end of the world, aren't we indirectly saying that, well, that day will be a bad day? When we say to someone in order to cheer them up, to let them know that this isn't the worst possible thing that could possibly happen, and we say, it's not the end of the world, are we not implicitly saying that, well, the end of the world, that day, that is the worst possible thing that could happen? So is it? Is that day, judgment day, the, Lord, the day where the Lord comes back to take with him all those who believe in him, is that the worst possible day? Will that day be a no good, very bad, horrible day? No, the no good, very bad, horrible day. And I'm not just asking in general, I'm asking you personally. What do you think? What are maybe some of your preconceptions about that day. It's no secret that very often people have a pessimistic outlook about judgment day, about that day. And, and typically people have that, well, negative idea about that day, well, for three reasons, I want to explore them with you, and, and this is the first fill in the blank. The first one is that I'm uncomfortable with the unknown. We look at God's word and, and what it says about heaven and the afterlife and judgment day and that day, and God's word does tell us quite a bit about that day, but it doesn't tell us everything. There's some things that are unknown. so. Humanly speaking, that's normal. We're uncomfortable with things that we don't know about. And maybe it stems from a very early age. A, a young girl wants to know if her, if her dog's going to be in heaven, so she asks somebody and they go, I, I, God's word doesn't say, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I've shared personally before that growing up I was told that in heaven you're going to sing forever. And as someone who as a young boy was told that you have a lot of volume, but you can't really blend well with others, aka no one told me as a kid you're bad at singing, but I get it now. I thought to myself, this is frustrating. Singing is hard. Is that what I'm going to do forever in heaven? But we grow up. We have other ideas or, or questions about the unknown. And, and those questions, they, they change from our unicorns going to be there to are my loved ones going to be there? And if they're there, am I going to recognize them? Are they going to recognize me? Are we going to share the special relationship that we shared together here on earth? What's my body going to be like? What's that experience going to be like? makes sense that there's some things that that we just don't know about that day and and so maybe it's out of a feeling of uncomfortableness that well we don't know what it'll be like that we have a negative outlook about it that's one reason here's another one maybe instead of being uncomfortable with what i don't know i'm afraid of what i do know are you afraid of that And you think about it, you know two things about that day, don't you? You know, one, that on that day, all people will meet God. God who is good. And not just God who is good, but God who is holy, perfect, just, blameless. And he will judge you. He will judge you and all creation. That's what scripture makes very clear. And secondly, we know that, well, while God's good, there are things in my life that aren't. I have done things, said things, thought things that aren't good. And what's going to happen when a not good person meets a very holy God? Is our... Negative outlook on that day because we're afraid of what we know. What we know that God knows. Here's the third and final one Do we have a less than idealistic and optimistic picture of that day because I'm materialistic and worldly? Now, certainly nobody would ever just say that and you wouldn't express it that way out loud, but Think about this. Do we not really think that favorably about that day, judgment day, because we like our life pretty well? How many of you have a bucket list? Pretty common thing, pretty okay and good thing to have a bucket list. I want to one day walk my daughter down the aisle. I want to be able to travel with my wife Maybe you have goals, ideas of things you want to accomplish before you go to heaven. Maybe you have goals personally or professionally. Maybe you want to enjoy retirement or explore Europe or the Caribbean, right? But what happens when we take our bucket list, something that's perfectly fine and really socially acceptable, and we use that to cover up something in our hearts that is a spiritual problem. What I'm talking about is wanting what this world has to offer more than what God has to offer in a new heaven and a new earth. Now, we wouldn't flat out say, I love this world, and I love this world more than God. But here's really how it goes. In our minds, as Christians, we say, look, I love Jesus. I know that he forgives my sins. I know he's redeemed me. I know he's gone into heaven to prepare a place for me that's going to be awesome, and I can't wait to be there someday. But just not yet. you. You (laughs) just, God, don't take me there so soon. I got some things I want to enjoy. I got some people here that I want to spend time with. And while there certainly is a, a way to prioritize our loves rightly, does our love for this world and what it has to offer really bring about this, this love triangle between us and the world and, and God for us that well, just doesn't work think about that day and you think about why we feel the way we do about that day, could it be because not just that we're uncomfortable with the unknown or afraid of what we do know, but really at the heart of it, we love this more than that day. I hate to ruin an ending of a good book, But we're in the end of Revelation, which is just not just the last chapter of the Bible, but a wonderful and beautiful summary of so many of the scriptural truths that are laid out throughout that entire book. And what we see in this book at the very end is John, John depicting what that day, what heaven will look like. And when John sees that day, one thing that John does not do is step back and say, God, okay, you've you've made known a lot of things, but I'm kind of wary about some of the things you've left unknown, so I'm not really that excited about it. What John doesn't do is say, oh, holy smokes, literally, I have seen a holy God and all of the smoke, all of the vengeance that that he is going to bring on those who who disobey him and do wrong, and I'm afraid of that, I don't want none of that. No, he doesn't do that. John doesn't see this glorious beatific vision and then say, oh, that's great, God, but I'm still on this island called Patmos and why don't you get me off of it because there's some people I want to see before you call me home to heaven. No, he doesn't do that. You want to know what John does when he sees what God revealed to him in Revelation? He shouts, Come! Come, Lord Jesus. At the very end of the book, and I'm going to give it away, Jesus says this, his last words, Yes, I am coming soon. And John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And that's verse 20. And he says it there with maybe some holy awe and respect. But back up just a few verses. And there he puts on the exclamation point. John says, Come, come, Jesus. Let me ask you that What did John see that makes him feel that way about that day? Because I want some of that. I want some of that, and and maybe you do too, because we can admit that we're not always as optimistic about that day as John. That's why I'm glad you're here, because what we're gonna do today, starting this day and for the next three Sundays, is we're going to look at that day in a new way. And no, I don't mean new as in I got like some trick up my sleeve about that day that you've never heard about before. No, what I mean by we're going to look at that day in a new way is we're going to look at it in... God's way from a biblical perspective. So often, so much of the afterlife and heaven and what the last day are going to be like, it's informed by culture. It's informed by art, sometimes even cartoons or books that aren't the Bible. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at God's word and specifically what he's revealed about that day in order to change your perspective, your attitude, and can I even say give you a new revelation or a a new vision about that day? That's what the Holy Spirit's gonna do. And we're gonna start here with what we read before in Revelation chapter one, 21, excuse me. There, you heard it before, God from his throne said this, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God said it from his throne. There's no one else who sits on God's throne except for God. He says, I'm making everything new. And what I wish we could do is explore all of the implications of applications of what it must mean that God makes every single thing new. But we're not going to explore everything. Just today, I want to look at five things. Five things that God is making new. And here's the first one. Ready? That God says that he is making a new world. That's our first fill in the blank if you're following along there. God is making a new world. Listen to this in verse 1 of chapter 21. John writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. God's word so far. A question that people often ask about that day the end times is a really big theological discussion that people really get wrapped up about. They want to know, will that day be annihilation? That is, that God completely and utterly destroys everything in this world. Or will that day be one of duration? Will it be one where God brings all things back to its restored original purpose? perfect in every way, annihilation or restoration. People ask this question about the last day, and they ask it very thoughtfully, looking at what God's word has to say about the matter. And you want to know what God's word has to say? God's word answers this question with an unqualified yes. Yes, it will be that. Because here's what God's word has to say. It says that what will take place on that day, when God comes back to judge the living and the dead, is that fire will indeed consume everything. But it will be like gold getting tossed into the refinery. It will burn up all the imperfections. It will burn up all the impurities. And what's left when gold comes out of a refinery? A good thing called gold. And and that's what will be left. Out of that, God will restore everything in this world the way he created it, perfect, holy, without any sin, without any of those imperfections, without any of those impurities. God says, I am going to give you an upgrade. I'm gonna make everything new, not new, and this is very important, not new as in I'm gonna create everything from scratch like I did in Genesis chapter one, but I'm gonna make everything renewed in the way it was originally intended to be, perfect. Say, that's pretty cool. New heaven, new earth, annihilated bad things, restored good things. But, well, is that figurative language? After all, we're in Revelation, and these are visions that God gave to the Apostle John. Is that really what it's going to be like for me? The answer is yes. Yes. Because here in Revelation, we know that this isn't just some vision of what heaven will be like. This isn't just some some thing that is where John is speaking figuratively. This is literally what will take place. And how do I know that? Well, let me introduce you to two other people. It's not just my idea or my interpretation. This is what a gentleman named Isaiah, who lived 700 years before Jesus, had to say about the life after, and a gentleman named Peter, who lived with Jesus, had to say about the end times. Isaiah 65, he records the Lord saying this, "'See, I will create new heavens and a new earth, "'and the former things will not be remembered, "'nor will they come to mind.'" Fast forward to the book of Second Peter chapter 3, where the apostle writes this, "'That day will bring about destruction.'" of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt away in the heat but in keeping with the promise we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells why does this matter why is it worth fleshing out that John here in Revelation is not just talking figuratively but he is in fact talking literally about what will the world look like the new world that God creates what does it matter so God's not just making a new heaven and a new earth, a new world just for kicks and giggles. No, he's making it for you. And that's our second one, that God is making a new you. John chapter 21, verse two says this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Here's an incredible thing. In Revelation chapter 1, what John is going to get to see is the new heaven and new earth. And what he's going to do, and I want to encourage you to go read the rest of this chapter on your own, is... God is going to take him on a tour of the new heaven and the new earth. And there's going to be some awesome things. There's going to be gates made out of pearls that are huge. There's going to be golden streets and buildings. There's going to be no signage in the new heaven and earth saying, this is where you find God and this is where you can go meet with him. Because God's glory and goodness and him and himself is going to consume and be everywhere. There's going to be no sun there's going to be no lights. Why? Because your Savior, Christ Jesus, who is the light of the world, will be the only light needed in that world. That's what you're going to see in Revelation chapter 21. But you want to know what God wants to show John and you before all that? He wants you to see you in that new world, the holy city prepared as a bride. And where am I in that verse? Well, friends, church, did you know that Scripture's favorite metaphor or illustration for the church is the new city, the holy Jerusalem? One of Jesus' favorite illustrations for you, the church, is as a bride dressed beautifully for him. That's who he's talking about in this verse. He's, he's talking about you, and if I can put it this way, Ephesians chapter 5 dresses up this picture of the bride prepared for Christ just a little bit more. It's a verse maybe you're familiar with because you hear at weddings, but... Here's the analogy. Christ is comparing husbands and wife relationship to the relationship that Christ has with the church. Ephesians 5.25 says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You want to know what John is doing in Revelation chapter 2 when he looks and he sees this? He's cutting straight to Easter. He is cutting straight to what your Savior Jesus did for you, give himself up for you, and why? It was to make you holy. It was so that through your baptism, the water and the word, you might be with him forever. As how? Radiant, without stain, without any imperfection, not even a wrinkle, but blameless and holy. That is the new you that God is making you and me and all saints who believe to be in heaven. And here's the really cool thing it gets even better. We read on, this is, this is our third one, that God is making a new existence. Verse four says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying for the old order of things has passed away. In this new world, with the new you, there will be no miscarriages. There will be no tragic deaths. There will be no accidental overdose. There will be no wars that take lives. There will be no cancer that takes lives. There will be no more death. There will be no heartache. There will be no headaches There will be no tears, for God himself will wipe away every tear from your eye. Just for a moment, think to this past week. Think about things that were frustrating, things that were infuriating, things that made you stressed out and sad. There won't be that. There will be nothing like the old order, this present order of things in heaven. Why? Because God is not just giving you a new experience, like a new event, a one time thing. No, He's giving you a brand new mode of existence in that new world with a new you there forever with Him. No death or depression. There will be no headaches or heartaches. No fears or frustration. There will be no busyness. No bullies. There will be no pain. There will be no shame. There will be no sin or sadness or stress. There will be nothing in heaven because God has has given to you a new existence here. And we've only really addressed that first fear that that is all too human, that we're often uncomfortable with things that we just don't know about. But what God says to you in his word, in Revelation 21 and, and so many other places we looked at, is while it's normal to be uncomfortable with the unknown, God says, what I'm giving you is better than anything you have ever known. I'm giving you a new world, a new you, and a new way to exist. But here's the fourth thing. (laughs) It gets even better. None of those are the best thing. Here's Here's the fourth one. God is making a renewed relationship, a renewed relationship with you. Revelation 21, verse 3 says, John said, I heard a loud voice from the throne, that is God, talking, saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Move to verse 6 and verse 7, where he repeats it. God says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. What does God want to show you from his throne? He shouts, look, look. God is living in your neighborhood. God is living next to you. I am with you. You are my people, and you are my God. Then he lists out a whole bunch of other good stuff that we just talked about. And He says, hey, one more thing. By the way, I will be your God, and you will be my people. You might say, well, Pastor, <laughs> we already have that, right? Like, I already know that God is with me all the time. He promises that in his word. I already know that by virtue of being a saint, a baptized believer, Christ is in me and I no longer live. It's, it's Christ who lives in me. And I know that the Holy Spirit has made his home in my heart. Why, why get excited about this? Why, why get excited about a relationship with God? I, I already have one. What God is talking about here is a renewed relationship with him, a relationship with him where we know him and we see him better than we ever have before because we see him, because we see him as he is face to face. We exist looking upon our God who loves us and created us in the same way that Moses and Joshua saw a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, we will see our God. In the same way where Peter, James, and John saw Jesus, we will see Jesus. What he's talking about here is a renewed relationship where the faithful, they no longer walk only by faith, but they walk by sight for they see their God as he is. And with Job, we say, I myself will see him. I, in my own flesh, and not another If someone were to ask you, what's the best part of that day of heaven? What are you most looking forward to? What would you say? I'll be honest, I'd be awfully tempted to talk about the new world, the new heaven and the new earth and how awesome it will be to be there in a new mode of existence and, and not know any sadness, not know any pain. Talk about how I'm gonna have a new body, and I don't know if it's like when I was 25 or what it'll be like when I'm 50 or 75 or 100, but I do know this that it'll be good. I'd probably tell people if they ask me what my favorite part of heaven is gonna be, I'd say, I'm looking forward to a pleasure that's, that's greater than what this world could offer. I'm looking forward to knowing a, a sense of fullness and fulfillment that, that never ends. I'm looking forward to all of those things. But you want to know something that's, that's not the best part? What God's word is telling us in Revelation and so many other places is that the best thing about being in heaven is about being with God about being with God, dwelling with him, and and God himself will be there and be there for us and with us in a new and wonderful way. And he will continue to give us water to those who thirst from the water of life. C.S. Lewis talking about this this wonderful dynamic, compared all the wonderful things that we have in life, sunsets, marriage, joy, friendship, all of these things. He says, they're all tributaries. They're, They're all things that just flow down from the original source, that thing which gives meaning and purpose and goodness to everything, and that's God. Writer to a book called The Book of Heaven said this, His name's Randy Elkhorn, and he said, not only will we see God's face and live, but we will likely wonder if we have ever lived before we saw his face. That's the best part of heaven, seeing God's face and seeing it with our own eyes. You know, there's a passage from this book. It's not meant to encourage you. It's meant to lift you up and to lift your eyes up to heaven and, and the joys that will come on that day. But I wouldn't blame you if our inner cynic and skeptic looked at this and said, I wonder if we ever lived before. Well, what are we doing now? What's, what's this then? And that brings us to our final and our, and our fifth new thing that God's giving us. God is, is giving you a new vision, a new outlook on that day. In Revelation chapter 21, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You see, the words, the vision, the glimpse of heaven, the beatific vision that God gives to John, it wasn't just for him, it was for you. And it's for you to share with others. He went on and he said, those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur that is the second death. Friends, we, we introduced our worship service today by talking about our celebration of All Saints Day. What is a saint? A saint is someone who trusts in God, someone who has faith by grace in Christ Jesus as their savior. And that means that that God has made you a now saint. I know the word orders there is a little bit messed up, but I thought it was clever because new now work with me here. God has made you a now saint. And what is a saint? Well, don't write this down as like a dogmatic definition of it, but a saint is someone who sees different. They see all of life and that day differently. It is someone who looks towards what is coming, looks towards what we have, and knows that they are this. They are victorious. And, And this is really wild that when God lists out here at the end of Revelation 21, people who will not be in heaven, he doesn't start with those who are sexually immoral, those who are liars and thieves, and those who take lives. No, he starts by saying people who are cowardly, they won't be with me in heaven. And it makes sense, right? makes sense because he's writing to people in that early Christian church who are undergoing unimaginable suffering and persecution. But we're not that different. The suffering and the persecution that the devil levies on our faith is no less serious spiritually. And so we take heart. We take courage in the new heaven and the new earth that God has given us. What, are we, we are uncomfortable? Yes, with things that we don't know, of course. But what God is saying, I'm giving you a new heaven and a new earth, a new you, and I'm giving you a new mode of existing there. And yes, while it's uncomfortable that the unknown, it will be better than anything you have ever known. Yes, is, is it happens sometimes when we look at our relationship with God and we know it's not what it should be and it's because of our own sinfulness, God is saying, don't be afraid of what you know. Instead, look. I am making all things new. And the best part of what I'm making new is my relationship with you, my son who gave everything up to make you holy and blameless and perfect without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. That is who you are now, saints. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of that which is to come. Here, look, here's a new vision, a new way of looking at that last day. So with John, we can all say, come Lord Jesus, amen.